All right, here we are, part seven. Um, wow, what a journey it's been. And I'm so glad that it ended up being part seven and not part six or part five or part four or part three <laughs> um, that ended up making this whole thing complete because seven is a number of completion and I like that a lot. And I especially like that... Um, we had the one diversion with the book burnings kind of in the middle there because um, that kind of breaks that pattern also. It um, is a sort of playfulness when it comes to the seven, that the seven's not perfect. And also what this opens up for is another kind of bonus episode that I'll release right after this one, which is a story that I recorded actually before I even started all of this that kind of fits all of it perfectly and so if I'm thinking about all that stuff and um, the the things that we've been talking about the things I've been circling around because I can't really get at what I'm trying to get at through words that's the challenge of this whole thing I have to look at frameworks and parables and uh, hierarchies and, and and all these sort of things because it it's all there's there's something else there that is too big for words um there's this um i forget the guy his name but uh he coined this phrase called hyper objects and hyper objects are these things that are too big for you to directly observe uh too big for you to um measure or quantify but nonetheless that exist and have real effects that's what I've been speaking on. And so it's interesting to come to a point where I feel like I've said all that I can at this moment within this cycle. So maybe just to bring it back around, I really like that idea of having this sense of completion with seven, but also breaking it with the eighth episode and bringing it back around actually with the ninth episode because um, in one of my first few episodes, I mentioned the emergence of a third and the first three episodes of the podcast were a set of three and um, the entire season was a set of nine um, so three times three and so now here we are again where I've cycled through and we're at another sense of completion so I don't know what season three will look like but it seems like a way forward for another emergence of a third uh, a third emergence of a third if you will it seems like that sort of play with the numbers, that sort of play with a sense of accomplishment or achievement, um, that each one of them is only momentary and in one sense can seem like a completion and in another sense can seem like um, wholly incomplete as well, it is also part of all this. So I like that a lot. I guess what that means is we're probably on the right track. If there's always something that can unfold again or uh, be elaborated on or wasn't quite articulated well or um, was missed or, or needs updating or whatever the case is, uh, that means that there's always a, a new third to be added to the stuff, to create a new dynamicism, something beyond the grab of opposites, something that emerges and grows and changes. And that's really all I've been trying to do with the whole podcast. So that's a pretty cool thought. It's also really cool to have 
gone through this process of trying to contaminate my own story and reinterpret it in light of all this stuff that I've come across to, to take some time to do some storytelling. And I don't think that that process is done either. Just because I've told my whole story through doesn't mean that that's static. It means that there's still more emergences to happen within that one. There's still things to change, um, new understandings to be had. But that being said, it is a good spot for the end of a season. So with that in mind, this episode is more just going to be kind of reflecting on the journey that's been realistically the last nine months, which is probably another third right there. Uh, there's a gestation period. That's, that's interesting to think about. Birthing pains. Yeah, we could definitely go off of that one too. But yeah, the, the whole thing, I think, for the next hour or so is really just going to be exploring odds and ends and tying it all together and, and not really trying to get it perfect or resolved or finished, but end the season well so that a new season can emerge. So originally, all this was supposed to be one episode that was just a side episode, a fun one, kind of like... Um, uh, one of the comet trails like the superheroes or the neowise and i fully expected it to just be this interesting rambling exploration and maybe integrate it back in with the truth and the love and the creativity episodes but that kind of changed because of um because of things that were going on in my life at the time uh, murph had just well he hadn't just passed away but it had just been a year. Uh, it was the anniversary of his suicide. And aside from that, Kim had passed away. And there was a lot of feelings of unresolved and the feelings of being haunted by both of them. And I'd never really had that from two fronts at once before, a recent friend and an old friend. And it got me thinking about all that stuff as well, because... It was interesting to think of the different ways the different people might be haunted. And, and I think that that's what kickstarted the whole thing. And of course we went through and um, I started talking about uh, multiverse theory and, and if there's all these different ways that people are sort of inhabiting our mind and haunting us that we kind of can use that to kickstart possibility and, and really like seeing that our lives could be different um, and then realizing that it doesn't have to be somebody that's dead, but really after I've gone through this whole thing and, and contaminated my own story, I've realized that there's even more to it than that. Um, there's people from the past, but the, there's also people from the future that can haunt you and, and change how you want to do things or, or the ways that um, things work going back to the idea of sevens there's this um native american uh notion i, I don't remember which tribe but I, I don't think it's one tribe either there's there's a few of them that have this notion of the seventh generation and the idea is the actions that you take today should have the seventh generation in mind if you can't think that far ahead with what repercussions your actions have maybe you shouldn't even take them in the first place and um, that's an interesting thought of like being haunted by the people that come after you as well. It's interesting too to think of the ways 
that I was definitely haunted by my wife. And I know that sounds weird, but when I was in the whole Christian framework thing, most of my life I was told that there was somebody out there for me, that God had somebody for me. And I don't think that you really get away from this either. Uh, most people have that notion. I think, you know, the notion of the one and, and your soulmate and the other half and all that kind of stuff. And it's really interesting because that comes from the Greco-Roman world, this idea that human beings are incomplete and we were split in half. We, we had like two heads and four limbs and, and all this stuff. And we were uh, split down the middle and scattered across the earth. Um, it, it definitely is a poetic notion, but as I think of the ways that my story has has gone, um, if if I could call anybody my soulmate, it would be Mira, the other part of me, the the other side of me, the feminine. Um, I already share a life with her. I am her, and and the lines are blurry and, and divided. And it's interesting to me that we look for this notion of completeness outside ourselves and we're so ready to try to find that. I think that that happens in less obvious ways too, like um, looking for a savior, which we usually don't label it that way, but um, you know, like the whatever politician we're gonna elect that's gonna fix the country or um, what brilliant mind is gonna crack the code and uh, solve the climate crisis or whatever it is, we, we always seem to have this idea that some hero might save us. And if we don't have that idea, then we have the idea that, that we're the hero ourselves and we're meant to save everything. Um, that's just the way that our stories usually go. But that definitely does fall short. All these heroics, this idea of a, a evil that's out there to be vanquished or a good that's out there to be obtained um they create these hard lines and i think we've seen the effects of these hard lines if we're looking back at the stuff that i laid out through the episodes um the witch hunts uh were a big thing uh slaughtering of native americans those were all heroics those were all ideas that like we are on the right side of history we are the good guys and if we could just get rid of the bad guys then um paradise will be upon us uh, the promised land is ours if we can uh, take it the, there's a sense of justice there a, a sense that um, there are people that deserve to be punished and I think that goes uh, further too we, we like to think that this was in the past but we do the same thing with uh, we did the same thing with the drug wars there's those those drug cartels that are out there and we need to get rid of them uh, or, or a little bit before that, you know, there's those uh, those hippies who are uh, degrading family values and uh, losing sense of right and wrong and just drugged out all the time and they're, they're dangerous and we need to eliminate them. Um, and the elimination isn't necessarily like a vanquishing in terms of uh, like physicality, although usually it does seem to have a physicality to it. Um, whether that's putting bodies in prison or killing people. Um, but it, it does have a, a clear sense of like, here's the line that you can't cross. And if we can only stay pure, then that's how we'll, we'll break that. 
And so it, there's not really a way to untie that from, from the notions that we have of what it means to arrive at the good life, whether that's um, through ourselves becoming the heroes or finding the hero, uh, finding the savior for ourselves, which would be like the soulmate or uh, the, the leader that we can follow. And it just ends up being these cycles that continue, continue and, and they uh, circle over and over again. Um, we, we don't really seem to actually get anywhere when we do that. Like, um, I think I mentioned it uh, about midway through the episodes, but Hannah Arendt's notion of the banality of evil, she was looking at um, this guy Eichmann being uh, sentenced for his war crimes as a Nazi and how regular and normal he was. And the reason that he was so uh, regular and normal uh, while doing these atrocities is because that's just how it works. Uh, evil isn't this dark, insane thing. It's um, uh, the, the people doing the evil think that they are doing the righteous thing. You know, Nazis as horrible of things that they did, they believed they were right. They believed if they could just get rid of the impurities, just get rid of the the darker hair, just get rid of the people that are disabled, then there would be this perfect society that, um, that would work out. Everything would be okay at that point. If you could just weed out the evil, paradise would be upon you. Utopia was within reach. Um, and so we have to realize that, that we are no different. We do the same thing. Um, every time we decide that there's certain people that don't fit in certain categories that don't work, um, if it's, uh, somebody who doesn't fit gender norms, uh, somebody who's homeless, somebody who does drugs, somebody who's an atheist, which by the way, all of those are me at this point, um, those categories of outside, if we keep deciding that those are the categories of outside, we we will eventually reach a point where we cause real harm to real people. And we won't even realize that we're doing it. We will think that we are uh, doing God's work, quote unquote, whether that's what our framework is or not. We will be the heroes of our own story. So I guess circling back with all this stuff, the real question is like, how do we, how do we get out of that trap? From my own experience, at least, what that often looks like is just taking time to actually stop and see. Uh, I mentioned briefly in the last episode going to the border, um, going to Tijuana and experiencing this really interesting trip where uh, we were told to just listen. And it was really cool because we got to hear um, all sorts of different people and perspectives revolving the border. Um, we heard from uh, border patrol guards. We heard from uh, people trying to outsmart the border patrol guards. We heard from uh, women in uh, safe houses that were trying to get ready to cross the border um, or even try to do it legally. Uh, we heard from... Uh, men that were deported and um, stuck in a home because their whole family is on the other side. Uh, 
we even heard of a 60-year-old veteran who thought he was a native, uh, or, or not native, but cent- um, what's it called, naturalized citizen, and um, was deported because of like a traffic violation. And he'd been there for 25 years, had built a family. His grandkids were, were hanging around, and all of a sudden he's separated from them. And you hear all these stories and you realize that each one is unique and each one has this unique tone of separation, like of, of forced splitting of families and of trials and hardships and just trying to survive. And it flies in the face of the narrative of like what um, illegal immigrants look like, which is such a strange thought to like to, to call a person illegal is weird. Um, I could get into a whole thing on that, but overall, it, it was such an interesting experience to just sit and listen and to, to have the space for that. And I think if we are going to begin to understand one another, we need to have this space. For, like we need to allow ourselves room to listen and room to understand. So the first thing that I got to say is thank you. Because if you're listening up until this point, it means that you're taking the time to understand, taking the time to hear beyond whatever stereotypes, um, because we all fit stereotypes to a certain extent. Like, I am a uh, a non-binary, homeless, drug-using weirdo (laughs) like i I don't know how else to put it like like if i like i can i can throw it there like i see it myself and um that doesn't mean that any of that stuff is not true but it also means there's a lot more going on than just that and when you take the time to hear the story and hear why people are where they're at or why they do what they do um it becomes very hard to turn somebody into just evil because people are complicated and the the more you know about somebody the more possibilities open up for what their story means or what it looks like or what it could look like or does look like has looked like um and as long as you're listening as long as you're looking it becomes impossible to not see the good alongside the bad um it's just phrase uh the the line between good and evil cuts through the hearts of uh, every man and i think that that's that's what it is so it's hard to listen because then we have to get rid of that narrative that we are the hero that we are um that we are the ones that can save everything because if the evil is within us too then what do we have to fight except ourselves And maybe that's really what the fight of evil actually looks like. It's not these big sword-wielding heroics and and overpowering somebody so that uh, they can be cast out or destroyed. It's more opening up and learning about ourselves, opening up new possibilities within ourselves by taking time to look at the things that seem ugly or out of place. And that's not an easy ask, right? Because uh, the fear is very real. This fear that um, that things will not be okay. This fear that something else will get us. That 
if we don't keep our guard up, then um, somehow something will come in. That, that's the definition of PTSD right there. I think that it's no accident that one of the hallmark characteristics of PTSD is an unwillingness to change the narrative. Um, what happens is you have this traumatic event and then your mind just keeps replaying the, the event over and over again with perfect clarity. And it's like we're doing the same thing with history. Uh, you know, they say that those who don't know the past are doomed to repeat it. And I think that's part of the picture for sure. But I think a, another part of it also is those who don't reinterpret the past are doomed to repeat it. Uh, it's no accident that as things get hard, people get a nostalgia for what was uh, uh, to make things great again or to um, a want for things to like get back to normal. Um, even though we can't really do that because there never was a normal. We we have a certain narrative of how things went and we've we've turned that rigid. We've decided that that can't be changed, that there is only one way that it happened and so there's only one way that things can go because that's our trajectory. But as long as we can let go of that fear or maybe not even let go of it, but just sit with it and feel the fear for a minute, feel the fear of uh, what we might find if we look honestly rather than um, just running with the assumptions that we always have rather than um, sticking to the same narrative over and over again uh, because that's really like what the PTSD symptoms are right is they are um, it's safe in a weird way because uh, it's manageable even though on one level it's scary um, what's more scary is releasing it and, and, and looking at things in a new light. That's what's really scary. So um, when I'm looking at all this stuff in the past, I might not even have it quite accurate, but there are things to uncover there that feel uncomfortable and that break down the narrative that we've been told. The uh, overarching, not necessarily the facts, the facts are there, they've always been there. Um, there's a, a certain degree of like what happened did happen. But what we choose to be important, whose perspective we choose to tell it from, um, what we decide it means makes a huge difference on how we bring ourselves into the future. And so it really matters to retell those, to, to find new perspectives. I think that this is something that we're already doing in a really cool way. Uh, if we look at these, um, well, just as a bookseller, there are so many books that are looking at the past through specific lenses. I mean, just this last year, I read one uh, called The Bookseller of Florence, which was literally looking at the entire Renaissance through the lens of a guy making manuscripts. And it was such a different perspective to get. And it colors my experience of the Renaissance, thinking of this guy working with a printing press during the same time that um, Galileo is writing or, or like drawing sketches during the same time that the Machiavellis are in power and um, thinking of this like small little bookshop at, and, and that changes the way that I see the bookshop that I have now. I, I feel a different lineage and um, it is just a story, but it, it changes the way that I move forward 
And it doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that it's what I'm choosing to focus on. It means that I'm choosing to open myself up to more attention, um, to more presence, even though what I thought I knew about certain categories of history or how I got here are very different than uh, what did happen. So uh, it's, it's not so much about making it right or finding what did happen because we're never going to be able to get that wholly accurate. At the end of the day, history is always going to be a story. And that's, that's true for a collective level. That's true for our individual level. As individuals, um, the same thing happens. Uh, just psychologically, whenever you recall a memory, that memory gets sort of bumped around a little bit and changed. Um, new connections are made to new pieces of information. Um, my story is forever changed by tying it to this podcast. Uh, it's not the same coming out as it was coming in. And that's a scary process because that can be very destabilizing um, depending on the context uh, because a rigid story is also a safe story. And there's a reason that these patterns and cycles continue over and over again within mythology and uh, just within our modern stories too. Uh, but that's kind of how myths are formed as well. Myths are formed through a continual, small, changing, gradual growing. And um, they're not so separate. We, we tend to think of stories and then we think of ourselves. And I, I think there's something to be said for um, looking at what stories we tell. Um, and, and I don't just mean history, but I mean... Uh, what sort of stories we tell each other on like a, uh, like Hollywood or um, the book industry, like like the stories collectively that we're, we're saying as a society and um, what that says about us or how we can reinterpret those stories or uh, change those stories. And I think that that's where some really cool things are actually happening. If we're looking at um, Hollywood alone, like it's, been this really interesting theme lately of uh, multiverse. Uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once just came out, and uh, Marvel has started like uh, the Multiverse of Madness, and uh, a lot of side stories have to do with all these these kind of things of uh, jumping through timelines and trying to find different possibilities. And there is a certain eeriness to that because when you watch these things, you go like, well. As far as we know, for the current science, this is a real possibility. We, we haven't found a way to jump, but there is something to be said. Like, like, that seems plausible at this point. Like, the things we know about the universe, the things we know about how physics work and, and, and how uh, everything is structured means that it is very likely that they're branching off of timelines constantly and um, that there is a multiverse out there, that there are multiple selves. But this is a really cool way, I think, to kickstart possibility. That means that we are also haunted by um, our other selves, the selves that we could be, the selves that um, maybe, depending on what you believe, are out there. That it means that, um, for instance, when I talked about in the last episode 
how poetic and beautiful it would have been uh, morbidly so if I finished this podcast series and then I died. <laughs> like, that, there would have been this, like, crazy cap off. Like, how much meaning and potency would that have for, like, whoever listened to it? And then, but, like, if we're talking about the multiverse, that's out there. Like, that, that happened somewhere. And just opening up my mind to that possibility kind of makes that self a little bit more real to me and changes my life in that way. So it's like now I don't have one story, but I have multiple stories. Um, these situations that like, if I am in a nexus of uh, storytelling, um, if I am the center point, the, the I that I am is like the center point of all these hauntings of different ideas and people from past and present um, real and non-real, uh, fictional and, uh, multiversal and, uh, then this sort of swirling and collaboration of who I am becomes a lot bigger and a lot more full of possibility. So to circle it back around to some of the other stuff I was talking about, as I'm talking about these things within my life that are a bit unconventional and a bit um, wild, to be honest, those things only seemed wild in until they happened. And the only reason they happened is because something somewhere opened up the possibility that they could. That somewhere someone said something about um, uh, psychedelic use and how freeing it was for them. And something in my brain, the story changed, and I went, oh, maybe that's not always a bad thing. Um, you know, and then maybe a little bit later, because I decided I needed to look into it, my attention was drawn to the fact that it it's actually great for some people. Um, and that doesn't mean that the old possibilities go away. It doesn't mean that there's no longer a sense of danger or a sense of fear over them. It just means that there's this broader picture of what's possible, that there's a possibility of, oh, I will go insane if I take this substance. And then there's also a possibility of, I will find a lot of healing and freedom if I take the substance. And those things, as contradictory as they are, from a, a broadening perspective, from a widening perspective, don't have to be contradictory anymore um, because there's this unfolding, this opening up. And, and maybe that's what the emergence of the third thing is. And within my own life story, I see this in numerous ways. Uh, obviously, when it comes to gender, there used to be a binary. There used to be uh, there's male or female, and there was a hierarchy. There, there within our patriarchal culture, um, male is considered on top. But even if it weren't considered on top, even if they were uh, in an uh, even tension, um, I would not have opened up to the full possibility of myself if I had kept that binary, if I had kept like, no, I am male and you do not cross over. That's not a story that is for me. That's not a story that, um, that I'm allowed to do. And that's how I was most of my life. So it's interesting to think about like the, the story of non-binary, seeing other people's stories and seeing them open up to their feminine side seeing myself open up to my own feminine side 
uh, in small increments and then having that be encouraged or, or having that resonate with other people um, creates a new story that opens up new possibility. And so you have to start kind of asking the question, which is <laughs> like, is it the stories that are creating your story or was it something that was in there all along? And I don't think that's easy to answer because um, there's no real way around around it. I, th I think we tend to think of like defaults and, and I got into this before um, where, you know, we think like, oh, well, uh, that's just because that's who you're hanging around. And, and like, of course, you're going to end up on the spectrum because you're only hanging around with people on the spectrum. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's also true. If you're just hanging around with people who are saying that there's only male and female, then um, you're going to be more likely to be like that because we're social creatures and we change based off of the people who are around. And so there's kind of this open question of like, uh, is it a social thing or are you born that way? And among the LGBT community saying like born this way is, is a very freeing thing. Um, and on the other side of that debate is like, yeah, but like the people you're around shape you. And both of those are true. So like in my own example, um, am I recognizing myself as non-binary because I've been around people that have different narratives yes but does that mean that that was not always me and no that doesn't mean that um i am who i've always been but there are so many different things hiding within us it, it it's more about manifestation it's more about um the freedom of expression like expressing what you want to express I never felt free in my body and I didn't have a narrative for why that was except that I was sinful and my nature was bad except that like I must not feel great all the time because we're in a fallen world and those were very vague notions but they were very real notions and I could have spent the rest of my life in that and that would have been a cohesive narrative that would have been something that I would have gotten to the end of my life and not ever felt like um, I should have done something different or something felt different. Like I, I could have gone um, with my last breath, God is calling me home and things are going to be okay soon. But that doesn't mean that Mira was never there. That doesn't mean that this other part of me uh, wasn't waiting for a narrative to come where she could be awakened. And that begs the, the question of like, what else is within me that I don't know yet? Like, what other parts of me are waiting to be revealed that haven't unfolded yet, that, that are still hiding, gestating, um, biding their time? And, and what else is true for everybody else in the world? And, that, and that's more, I think, the heart of the matter, which is the, the beauty and the wonder of... Um, the LGBT community is like there's this this opening up of possibility um, there is nothing wrong with being male or female uh, the movement never says that the movement says there's actually more possibilities if you want them uh, if you feel like you're just you're male if you feel like you're female you're female that's fine 
But also, if you feel like there's something that doesn't quite match on either of those, uh, here's a third option. Here's a fourth option. Here's a fifth option. And the nature of it is it's a continual unfolding. It's an evolving um, movement. And, and, and people ridicule it a lot of times because like, oh, you're attaching more things to the end of it and you're making more identities and making this more complicated. Why are you making it more complicated? It's simple. Um, human beings aren't simple. And identity is insanely complicated. The different stories that we tie to on every different level of life, uh, whether that's our friends, our family, our city, our country, humanity as a whole, we all have different bits and pieces of that, um, contradictory pieces, pieces that are waiting to uh, be awoken, pieces that are already awoken, um, things that want to be solidified things that want to be dissolved and when we decide that there's only one thing that can happen or can't happen we break apart that possibility and we turn it into a linear path and when it's a linear path and there's not possibility all of a sudden we're on a journey again and we're back to the hero's journey which is to say, if there's only one way that I can be, and there's a thousand ways that I can't be, then I need to keep making it so that it goes this way. The story has to go this way, so I need to make it happen. And if it's not happening, it can't be me because I'm following the path. Then it has to be somebody else, and it's their fault. It's their fault. If I feel like things are going wrong, if I don't feel satisfied with my life, then I need to figure out who did it. And I need to punish them. And sometimes this manifests in stuff that is very obviously toxic and dangerous, like racism or sexism. But that's a lot more rare. More often than not, it means disregarding. It means saying, well, if you're suffering, then that's your own fault because you're not on the path. That's not my problem. That's something that you need to fix. You need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. You need to um, get back onto the path so that we can all get to the promised land. Except it never really ends there, does it? Because um, maybe it's some sort of subconscious feeling of the instability of the story. I, I don't know what quite causes us to make this jump, but we start to get defensive of our path. And we start to believe that somebody might try to derail it, like they are um, this this evil person that just hates life, hates other people, is resentful, and just wants to destroy everything good. And so we believe we're on this good path, and then somebody says, no, that's not a good path. I hate that path. Um, then we basically, we go, well, fuck you then. I hate you because this is the path. This is the good path. And as long as we only have that possibility that there's one path, that there's one way that we can go, that this, this one narrative, um, any sort of opposition to that narrative is going to feel personally offensive. And it's going to feel like an injustice that somebody's attacking it because this is the good and we're part of the good. And the framework that we do with that, the way that we tell our stories, 
is when you're confronted with evil, you have to make this power, uh, this powerful stand against it. And you have to do a show of strength. And we don't often say it out loud, but our narratives very much revolve around might makes right. If we can, like good will overpower evil. If we can be strong, if we can put enough firepower to it, enough manliness to it, uh, evil is weak and evil cannot stand. We will overcome it. And this is how we get the concept of punitive justice. We believe that there's evil in the world and um, it deserves an answer. And I think that that's a good place to be at is like all the wrong things in the world, we don't want to just ignore them. You know, we, we had another set of shootings over the last month. We don't want to just be like, ah, well, that's okay. Um, we want an answer for that. But um, a lot of times within this rigid narrow framework within this heroic journey, this belief that you're on the good path means punishing those who are not on the path. It means uh, the prison industrial complex. And in a way, uh, it means privatizing that because then you have industry, which is part of the good. Um, you have capitalism thrown at it, which is uh, as we already established before, uh, which is God, the, the, the secular replacement of God, this idea of eternality. Um, we've, we've decided that uh, money saved up in the future is, is the promise of eternity, the uncorruptible, uh, non-degrading substance that provides our salvation that as long as we can hold on to that thing, as long as we can stay on that path of money-making, that path of accumulation of wealth, uh, the promised land awaits for us one day when our fight is over. And so we co-opt that. We, uh, one of our cheapest labor systems in the U.S. is uh, the prison system. We do something like less than a dollar an hour in a lot of cases. And uh, it's essentially slave labor which is also why we had slaves and why we had such opposition to that for a while too, because um, we had systems in place that were money-making systems. And when money is turned into the thing itself, not the means for relationship, not the uh, vehicle for a connection between individuals, but the way of salvation, punitive justice becomes... Uh, a way of money making in of itself. That's a way of turning the bad into the good. And so these systems self-perpetuate. You have this feeling of uh, salvation coming through capital gains. You have this idea that there are people that are in and there are people that are out, people who are on the path, people who aren't. And if people aren't on the path, they're evil because the path is good. And... Um, you have this weird merging that also kind of happens within Christianity that co-ops these notions of eternity for um, capitalism, for free market, for individualism. Uh, that is sort of a false individualism, honestly, too, because it's this right to uh, be autonomous, which is not really how we find ourselves. We find ourselves through each other. Um, like I said, that's the power of the LGBT community but when you're under a framework where every single man looks the same and every single woman looks the same, 
there's not room for new stories. There's not room for unfolding and becoming yourself. There isn't room for a true individuality and autonomy. Um, it means that you're just stuck to the systems, that you're tied to the systems and you're limited in your being and you're limited in your availability to put something new into the world. But meanwhile, because the evil within isn't being addressed, it perpetuates and it cycles through. Um, we do harm to others because we don't recognize the uh, darkness within ourselves. Uh, we don't recognize the shadow side. We don't recognize the pieces of ourselves that want to be seen and known so that we can have healing. Instead, we offset that. In order to feel better, we punish those outside of us. We... Um, pass it back and forth. We get angry at somebody and we say, no, you're the problem. And we hurt them through that. And then in their hurt, they hurt somebody else and say, no, you're the problem. And we end up with a bunch of enemies of each other. And we end up divided. And we end up not connected. And we end up not learning from each other and expanding and growing. We end up stuck and stagnant and unchanging. But meanwhile... If this evil is in all of us, then what do we do with that? Because there is still a demand for justice, and it doesn't look like the punitive justice is working. It looks like it just keeps perpetuating cycles. Uh, we can see this on an individual level, where um, grudges just like go on for years and years, but we can also see this on a collective level, like uh, military arms races, where we're spending, um, I think this year, we actually increased our budget um, that... I think I did the math, which was uh, 2,500 or so per U.S. citizen that, that, is, that we each individually are paying um, to make the budget. And uh, meanwhile, you know, it's too expensive to do something like uh, social programs. But that's because um, we have a lot of people tying into this narrative that there's a right path and there's a wrong path. And there's certain people that deserve it and there's certain people that don't deserve it. And if you're outside of the path, it's your fault. You're the one that strayed. So we don't want to give money to people that we don't think deserve it. We don't want people to have their lives be okay without the hard work. And because we, we are still on this heroic journey where we believe that we are fighting the good fight. And how dare people who are not fighting the good fight say that they deserve that too? And so it proliferates and it continues to cycle through. And, and there's this evil that is not being dealt with. It's just being passed along. And, and this, this brokenness that doesn't get healed. And, and we're just, we're there and it's in everybody. And it's, everybody's being hurt by it. Everybody's being lessened by it. Um, but there's no real answer for it, right? Like punitive justice doesn't have a way to fix that. You uh, throw somebody in jail for um, stealing something. And then they're in jail and their kid experiences not having a dad or a mom. And then they feel troubled and they go and steal something. And then a cycle continues and nothing ever really gets solved. Now now there's more people in the world stealing things. And we're just punishing more and more people. 
uh, mass incarceration is, uh, especially from the height of the drug war, like we decided drugs were bad and we started putting people in jail and we put more and more and more and more people in jail for doing drugs and the drugs are still out there. Um, we, we, we definitely lost the drug war. We put tons of money into it. We put tons of effort, locked a ton of people up and drugs are still out there. And so the real question you got to ask after a while for all these crimes, these things that people are committing is like, why are people committing the crimes? And that's where restorative justice comes in. And that's, I think the real answer to all this is like getting rid of the idea of we need to punish somebody for doing something wrong and instead look at what can we do to restore? What can we do to, to make things right, to bring things back into balance, to turn things back into the natural cycles, um, to bring stuff back to abundance where everybody feels like they're cared for, where everybody feels like they have a place, a purpose, and where everybody feels like they belong in the story, where there is no outside of the path, but there's just a, a vast network of infinite different ways to live and to be, and everybody's taken care of. And whenever there is an outlier where somebody is stopping somebody else from being able to do that, we have an answer for it. We have a way to remove that from the equation, much like the mushrooms do, much like the, the mycelium do, where they send out um, antifungals so other fungus can't um, overtake them. But, but there's a certain strength in that where there's not like a fear. There's just a capability. There's a, uh, we're not going to let this happen. I'm sorry. If you want to try to find a way to reintegrate, that sounds good. We will do everything we can to make that happen. But maybe uh, that's not what you want either. That's okay. You can live your solo journey, but we're here waiting for connection. And meanwhile, you're never going to feel satisfied on your own because human beings are meant for connections. So it, it's one of those things where it's like, we're always better together. We always do better things when we... Um, collaborate, when we communicate, when we're in relationship. And that is always going to be stronger than these lone wolves, these individuals that try to break things, that try to um, incite fear. I mean, to be frank, um, you know, the war on terror, the, the terrorists won, we were terrified. And a way that we could have turned away from that was not a ton of military might, was not of trying to vanquish the enemy, but realizing that if an enemy's out there, it's kind of irrelevant because we're stronger together and they are always going to be weaker alone. They are always going to be um, incapable of the dramatic and beautiful and lovely change that happens when we all come together. And we see that in nature. We see that um, over and over again with uh, like trees and mycelium and um, uh, partnerships between different species and, and these ways of, of sharing and giving the, uh, this mutual back and forth. We even see that in, in the realms of like death. If we're going to go back to this whole thing with death and acceptance, like we think of death as such a horrible ending thing that we have to avoid at all costs, but there's ways to die gracefully and there's ways to um, have death be full of meaning. 
And in fact, it's never not that way. If, if you were living, then the end of your life has meaning too. And it springs forth new things. Like I had said before, it's, a, it's almost like the dead log and, and the mushrooms growing off of it. These specters of the people of the past, these ways that were haunted by those who came before us, that is like a, this, this life force, this energy of um, someone who has died continuing on and, and being reinvented and remade and, and digested and modified and turned into something new. So really, I guess what I'm getting at is if we could let go of our fear of death, then I think we can also let go of our fear of the unknown, our fear of straying from the path, our fear of being changed. Because realistically, to grow and to unfold also means having a thousand little deaths. I am not the person that I was um, five years ago, ten years ago, because none of us are. And to think of ourselves as a static individual through all of life on one hand is a complete falsehood. We're constantly changing and our ideas of what the path looks like is constantly changing. But also too, when we adopt that narrative, we stifle the change. The change is still trying to happen, but it becomes painful. It becomes terrifying. It becomes difficult. And on the other hand, if we recognize that it's less of a path and more of this beautiful wilderness full of life, there is so much room to just enjoy the process and not be afraid of where it takes us. If there's no wrong path and it's all just beauty and unfolding, then it becomes exciting. It becomes exciting to see what's around the next bend and what sort of new pieces of ourselves are going to emerge and what sort of pieces of ourselves are going to die off that we never expected would and what grows from that death. So when I'm looking at all these hauntings and these Halloween things, I recognize that death and acceptance are very deeply tied together, that we can't have a true look at one without looking at the other. And it is absolutely fitting that Thanksgiving comes after Halloween because we need that. If, if we want to um, digest the log, to use the metaphor, we, we need to approach it with gratitude of what came before and not opposition, but thanks and a joyful consuming. We need a way of taking the things that we once called bad and looking at them honestly, looking at the ruins of them and going, how can I reintegrate this? What parts of this can I use? There's a certain inventiveness to it of going, I can't get behind that structure. That structure is dead. I can't use it anymore, but what if I tear it apart? Maybe there's a wall here or a floorboard there that I can absolutely make into something wonderful and something new, something that I can um, use to enrich. Um, restorative justice looks like letting go of the anger and the hatred of the condemned building that's doomed to fall and not setting it on fire, but instead going, ooh, what's there? What's there that we can still use? And human beings are so much more than a building, right? Like, if we're looking at the sheer potential lying within a human being, it means that we can never really just give up on somebody. 
because there's so many different stories that we can imbibe. There's so many different ways that we can be in the world. There's so many different possibilities within each person that to give up on them would be a waste. It would mean uh, letting go of a valuable resource. But that does take a lot of trust because that means trusting that there is good in there. And it means actually taking a heavy look at somebody who you find and maybe initially worthy of being cast out, of being discarded. Somebody who uh, is doing a lot of harmful things to people. Somebody who is doing a lot of harmful things to themselves. And it means looking beyond your version of that story and looking into theirs because unless they've absolutely given up on life, they still see themselves as the hero. And there's a narrative there that we can work with. There's a way to not put somebody as your enemy, no matter what they've done, whatever horrible things they've done, whatever evils they've committed, and choosing instead to go, what can I work with? What do you have with you? Like, where can we connect? Where is the universality here that we both see? And how can we reinvent your story so that it fits with everybody else's story? And this is great on an interpersonal level, on an individual level. But I think it's even more important when we look at it at a global scale because part of the damage that we've done goes so much deeper than just us as human beings. These narratives that we've created, these rigid structures of us being the heroes and running into the promised land, this idea of manifest destiny, this idea of receiving God's blessing and walking the narrow path has caused us to co-opt a lot of other narratives that have harmed not only a lot of people, but the planet itself. Within the realms of capitalism and patriarchy and all these hierarchy, hierarchical norms where some things are better than other things in this world, where there are things that deserve to be on top and things that deserve to be on bottom, things that are good and things that are bad, things that need to be cast out and removed, we have uh, done a lot of damage. There are so many things that um, we had no notion of balance for that we thought we were doing good with. We, we honestly thought that we were doing good things when we decided to clear cut forests. And we thought we were doing good things when we were doing monocrops and when we were bulldozing so that we could make suburbs, when we were using pesticides so that we could get rid of the bugs. We had these notions of contamination, this idea that there's this holy story and we got to get the other parts out, um, that we didn't listen to what the earth was telling us. Essentially, we pillaged her for resources for our own gain because we thought we were better. And maybe this is where the notions of patriarchy and the notions of capitalism and, and all this kind of stuff comes together is we call nature mother nature, but if she's feminine, then we raped her. I don't think there's much of a way around it. There were signs and there were things very clearly where she was saying, no, stop doing that. Um, where we saw things go out of balance, where we saw things um, lash out back at us. And we chose to ignore that because we decided 
that we were more important, that our story was more important than what was going on around us. And we're all culpable in that because it's a collective story. It's not something that we can just choose to get away with by living our individual lives because we're all part of these structures. We're all part of these systems, these damaging systems that cause all this. Like, like we are all to blame. Like no one individual is to blame, but all of us are part of it. And so, you know, it doesn't matter that we didn't hear the screams of no, 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 don't do that. It doesn't matter that we were deaf. Like, we still violated nature. We still caused irreparable damage. But the good news in that, the good news is, is that Mother Nature doesn't seem to have a sense of punitive justice. Anywhere you look, um, there, there's no notion of getting out the contaminant or weeding out the evil. There, there's no notion of um, something that needs to suffer for the sake of the rest of the system to work. Nature is interested in restoration. Restorative justice is the name of the game when it comes to the planet. And so that's the good news, is we don't have to worry about the punishments that's coming. I think there's a certain sense that we feel that. More often than not, we feel like, well, humanity just deserves to die anyway. And in a certain sense, maybe that's kind of true. We have done a lot of really wrong things, not just to ourselves. But the real way to fix things is restoration. And so maybe that's the next path for us. Maybe that's the way that we uh, move forward is we get away, away from this idea of getting rid of contamination, even if that contamination is ourselves. Uh, we recognize with gratitude that um, death is maybe probably what we deserve. And yet we're still here. It wasn't our decision to make, and we seem to um, be allowed to stay somehow. And that means that every single moment for us is a gift. And if we look at it as a gift, if we look at the ways that we're still here despite ourselves as a gift, then how can that transform the ways that we live in the world? Um, obviously, it means hearing the cries of nature. It means not wanting to do that thing again because our story has changed. Our story has changed from we are on the righteous path to uh, we had it wrong. It changes to a we had it wrong and yet we're still a part of this. And yet we still get to connect. Nature is still here. The world is still here and it is not ruined we've got a second chance and we probably got a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. And we're going to get it wrong because the story is complicated and we've got a lot of baggage that we're going through. There's a lot of PTSD that we've given ourselves, a lot of trauma that we've inflicted on others and on our own being. And it's not going to go away overnight. We're not going to learn how to fix this in a blink of an eye. So in that sense, in the traditional sense, in the heroic sense, 
um, it's hopeless. We we can't fix it because we are not the hero. <laughs> if, and if we're not the hero, then we can't go on the heroic journey and vanquish the evil, um, which is the climate change and just cause everything to be all right. But if we choose to enter into a different story, a story that says that each one of us is here for a reason and the planet has decided that we are allowed to be here that nature is not this evil thing to be vanquished or pushed away and contamination isn't something that we need to worry about but that it's a dance that we get to take part in um and we each do have a part and there is something within us that's tied to the soul of the world that the world decided that we are a part of the equilibrium, then that means that there's something within us to be awoken in a small, subtle, quiet way that looks like getting to know ourselves rather than striving and achieving, that it just means understanding ourselves and understanding each other and reconnecting is, is the answer. Um, so weirdly, it means letting go of trying to fix it all and instead just sitting with it and listening. It means just listening, and that's it. And that's it. So, you guys might have noticed something, though, when I'm saying all of this. And this is how deep it goes. I have created an opposition. So what do we do with that? Because I have said clearly there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. <laughs> and this is the steps and these are the things. So we've created a new path and we're back at the starting point with a new narrow story of good and evil. Well, yeah, what do we do with that? Really, the only thing we can do is continue the process, right? So let's look at some of these things that I've labeled as quote-unquote evil and reinterpret them and re-understand them and sit with them and get to know them and see their nuance and their complexity and the good and the bad in them and and the unfolding of what they are uh, because the fact of the matter is at the end of the day if it was all evil if these stories were just evil then they wouldn't be latched onto because there is something within us that wants so badly to be on the good side of history, that wants so badly to be good and to be a part of the grand story, not the enemy. Um, we don't have it in us to just attach to an evil narrative. It's not our nature. It's not how we were made. It's not how we were uh, formed or evolved or created, whichever framework you want. That is not what it means to be human. And so there's something good in these stories as well. When we look at something like capitalism, I looked back on it and looked at the roots of it, the ways that the story sort of got muddled from uh, being about relationship. And so what that means is we can take these systems and we we can still use them and we can still... Um, attached to them but more selectively and decide uh, which ways are actually helpful and which aren't, right? So I can go, you know, actually money is a really cool tool and it provides a lot of freedom for a lot of people. 
So I can detach myself from capitalism and I can um, try to live more simply and more present in the present moment rather than saving up out of a notion of scarcity. And I can go, you know, maybe it's easier for me to give away things now because I've sat with myself and I've become content with myself where I don't feel the lack. Um, I can give that gift to somebody else in a small way. I can say, you know, I think you deserve a treat or um, some freedom of a financial burden because I found some freedom and I would like you to have that freedom too. And then you have a means of connecting with somebody. Or um, what about uh, the whole patriarchal stuff, right? Uh, we have this idea of masculine and feminine. Well, I don't think those are bad either. Those are, uh, in in right relationship, they're a wonderful archetypal view of uh, opposites. And really the only difficulty we run into is when we decide that they have to be a certain way or that um, a person can only embody one of them at any given time or, or at all times, really. And if, if it's untied from any individual way that any person has to be, then it becomes this really cool framework where I can be like, oh, do I want to be masculine right now or do I want to be feminine right now? Or do I want to be something else? Um, and there are some very real differences between the ways that people interact. And, and the shorthands can be really good tools to know who to connect with when. Um, if I am emerging as feminine, uh, then it helps to know that female exists, um, that, that women might be more likely to be feminine. Um, and, and I have a starting point, but the moment I tie myself to it, it becomes rigid again and it becomes stuck. So, um, that's another one. Uh, what are some of the other things we're talking about? Uh, if we're talking about, uh, climate change. Um, first off, it's an initiatory event, which is always something that precedes growth. So even to talk about it in terms of like, this is the evil thing that we got to get rid of, which I think I actually literally said, um, it's not, it's, it's a reaction. It's a, it's a change, but change doesn't have to be bad. And, um, death, is another one of those things where I already talked about, like it doesn't have to be a bad thing. We can choose to look at it from a different perspective and look at it with uh, honesty and um, with an attunement to the fear, but not letting the fear control and and opening ourselves up to other ideas and other ways, um, things that are unlikely, uh, new realms for hope, new realms for possibility. And sometimes what needs to happen is is things need to die before something new can emerge. That's what the cycles and the seasons tell us, is that there is always death and rebirth, that out of the ashes always comes the phoenix. And um, the fertile ground is where the greenest plants grow. And the ground is only fertile because there's dead things in it. So none of these things are actually bad. And I want to make that clear because... We're missing an opportunity if we just create a new framework of new definitions of good and bad. The idea, I think, instead of trying to create those hard lines is to look where balance is and to look where things are in harmony, where things are connecting and restoring and eroding away at 
a solid pace at a pace that allows for an infinite game that allows for a perpetual sort of motion and flow. And so maybe that's where it comes back to the creativity and to the truth episode and into the love episode is this idea of constant emergence that that's what we should be looking for. And I say should, right? Even to say should is putting a hard line. So it becomes an impossible task. And words are always going to fall short on this process. And we're never going to reach the end of that process. It's recursive. Every single level, there's a new... um, When we find a new avenue to explore and reinvent what we see of as good and evil, we've created another line of good and evil. and, um, And then we dissolve that one, but a new one shows up. And we never actually arrive, but that's okay. Because... The real beauty is in the process. The real beauty is in the unfolding and the continual motion of it. Uh, That is where life is beautiful. And if we can let go of this notion of one day everything being perfect, everything being resolved, the to-do list finally being done, then we can really step into the present. And we can create a new perpetual cycle, a cycle not filled with uh, this passing on of evil to each other, but instead this passing on of freedom to be in the present. That if we can let go of the idea that one day we will arrive at our destination, then we can enjoy the walk and we can be present to where we are right now in this moment. And as we do that, we're more present to each other, we're more present to ourselves, we're more present to nature. And we begin to notice things and notice more ways where we can connect right now. And the paradoxical truth of that is that as we do that, new things emerge that wouldn't have emerged before and we actually create a better future for ourselves. We create something that's more bright and more full of possibility. And so maybe that's the end of all this, the 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 look at it as I've come through uh, the the darkness of of the death of things in fall and into the silence and the cold uh, quietness of winter and into the new life of spring and now here back all the way into summer. I've gone through all the seasons and this right here full of life, this moment right now is something that we can always access even in the darkest of times. It doesn't have to be when things are ideal. I have COVID right now. And luckily it's not affecting too much for being able to articulate all this. But it's less than ideal. And I don't know when it's going away. And I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know if that is tomorrow because uh, I have an aneurysm or if it's at 80 peacefully in my sleep. We can't know that. We can't know the future. The future is not guaranteed. But it does become a lot better when we decide that every moment is precious. Every moment is a gift. Every moment is something that we very easily could not have taken part in. The full, crazy possibility of life 
the paths that we could have taken, that multiverse of opportunity, also multiverse of unlikeliness of where we are now, creates for an ever-deepening beauty and enjoyment for what's in front of us. So that's the acceptance part. I think the acceptance that all this will come to an end at one day, one day for ourselves and one day for everybody. And that might be tomorrow. That might be a thousand years from now. But if we can accept that, we can accept that difficulty, that mortality, then we can truly unfold and truly experience life. And that's what I'm trying to do. Honestly, that, that's what this podcast is. That's what all of this exploration is, is trying to unfold and trying to find life and an ability for myself to be in the present because that's the only kind of living worth doing is being connected, being open, being present, feeling the life around you and growing and changing because of it. So I hope this has been a good journey for you. Um, it's been a fantastic journey for me. I feel like I've learned a lot. I feel like I've stepped into a little bit more uh, freedom within myself to be myself and to be present. And um, I'm excited to see what new connections are made as this whole thing con continues. Um, I want to leave you guys with one last thing, which is a sort of bonus episode. I think I talked about it before, but... Um, That'll be right up after this. And other than that, just thank you for listening in. And we'll be back for another season some point, I think. <laughs> uh, no guarantees, but um, a lot of hope. Yeah, a lot of hope.